1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection.
2: Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for
3: Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the Restless Ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: I am Scott. And I'm Ben. And we're from Car Stuff. We're the podcast that covers everything that floats, flies, swims, or drives adventures, thrills, chills, literally planes, trains, and automobiles. That's right. And you can find all of our episodes on Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, and really anywhere else you get your podcast.
2: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen and I'm Caroline, and today, as we announced on social media, actually a while back, we're talking about Hillary Clinton.
3: Yeah, I'm. I'm excited. I uh, am glad that we are taking this opportunity to apply our sminty research. We're putting on our research caps. To mine has sequins on it. Um, Actually, mine's uh, like a floppy uh, sun hat. Does it have a feather?
0: No, no feathers, just like a straw hat, um, like the kind you wear at the beach, because I wish that I was at the beach right now. Yeah,
3: because your future's so bright, you got to wear a floppy sun hat. Oh, I love it. Um, But we wanted to put on our very Sminty-esque research caps today to apply that um rigorous approach to Hillary Clinton because I know there was a little bit of trepidation that we would uh maybe like just deliver a puff piece. But when have you known us besides maybe the dad bods episode to deliver a puff piece?
0: Oh, I think the dad bods was not a puff piece. <laughs> it was maybe a puffy piece. Oh, so.
3: mm, Puff pastry. <laughs>
0: um, and some people were, you know, a little curious as to why we would even talk about her i mean she's obviously you know she can be a polarizing figure but the fact of the matter is hillary clinton hands down is the most successful woman in the history of american politics i think it would be really hard to argue that she's not and since she became the first lady of arkansas in 1979 people have both loved and loathed her and we want to emphasize that in this episode we're not trying to convince you to feel one way or the other about her because y'all, it's America, um, and a also it's just not our job. Um, and we also want to let you know at the top of the podcast that we cannot cover every single detail of her life because there is a lot. I mean, yeah. she's done a lot, but there's also been so much written about her. Oh yeah, whether it's books, academic articles, things with words in them. So many words. <laughs> so all many the words. words. Um, so for the purpose of this episode,
3: we are not going to be talking about her in the current campaign. No, we're not going to talk about her current platform, No, her going up against Bernie Sanders, how she might fare against uh, an opponent in the general election. None of that. We're not even really going to talk
0: about 2008, her um, no. running against Obama. Um, we are focusing on the Hillary Clinton and really the Hillary Rodham um, that. I, as, you know, someone who uh, was very young when she was coming up in politics, um, the part of her that might not be as familiar to listeners, uh, younger listeners, um, and yes, I do, you know, count
3: people our age as younger, um, because we will always be young at heart. Um, well, and especially, and I really do not mean this in a disparaging manner whatsoever, trust me. Especially going off of the response we got to our Anita Hill episode where people our age and younger were like, whoa, 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 what? I didn't even know the full. Ex- Either I didn't know or I didn't know the full extent. And so we sort of hope to apply that treatment to, to Hillary Rodham Clinton as well and fill you in on basically how she got on the path that she has been on essentially her entire life. Yeah, so we're going to focus on her
0: pre Lewinsky scandal biography, um, and also the public perception around that because we want to focus obviously on the facts of her life, um, and how the facts of her, how her facts of life, you take the good, you take the bad. The facts machine? The fact, no, like the fact that, Yes, all of her faxes, Um, not her emails, though. Uh, And we want to talk about how um, her 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 facts of life. (laughs) Now I just want to hear that theme song Um, uh, have been kind of filtered through the press machine and influence public perception. So in other words, we, we want to talk about how Hillary Diane Rodham became
3: Hillary Rodham
0: Clinton, and how the press has played the so-called gender card.
3: Yeah, I'm going to get the uh, the gender
0: tarot card deck. Oh, yeah. to read our gender card future? Yeah. Oh, man, I'm very nervous about my salary. <laughs> um, but the quote-unquote gender card is a huge factor in our conversation because the very way that she has been covered as just a person, a politician, a wife, a mother, a lover of headbands, you know, for 40 years now has been so hypergendered. gendered And um, since this is Stuff I've Never Told You, that is really what we're most interested in. Yeah. Um, because I think it says a lot to all of us, regardless of where we stand politically or um, w- w- our station in life. Um, it says a lot about our cultural climate as it relates to ambitious, career-driven women.
3: Yeah, and ambitious, career-driven women who are even different from the rest. So, for instance, Hillary Clinton not necessarily conforming to the way that a woman is supposed to work or be professional. Oh, yeah. I mean—
0: and also, before we get further into our conversation, I want to thank all of the stuff I never told you listeners who sent us voice memos, sharing their thoughts on Hillary, because this is a conversation that we wanted to uh, to invite you all into. We want your literal voices in this because, um, you know, there are so many different opinions about her out there. So with that, let's talk about Hills. Let's talk about Hillary, Diane Rodham. Now, Hillary Rodham Clinton, um, who, by the way, I thought I thought this was uh, notable, Caroline, that despite all of the the mixed opinions that are absolutely out there about her, she has been Gallup polls most admired woman in America for 20 years running. And the fact of the matter is, folks, when we look at her bio,
3: there is a lot to
0: genuinely admire. <laughs>
3: Yeah, listener Ann certainly thinks so, and she wishes more people talked about it.
1: I love Hillary Clinton because she's one of the most accomplished women in the world. In many different areas, she's had tons of different experiences and proven her commitment to working her ass off. It's hard to love Hillary Clinton, though, because we never get to talk about her in that way because of all of the sexist bullshit that people don't like women as much when they talk about their own accomplishments.
3: She's a fascinating figure. And it starts with the fact that her name is inspired by explorer Edmund Hillary. I
0: know. I Uh, love
3: that. I didn't know that. Uh, this, This episode is honestly full of stuff I didn't know. Um, but she was born October 26, 1947, in Chicago. She was the first of three children to Hugh and Dorothy Rodham. And her, it was a pretty conservative family. Her dad owned a drapery fabric business and she grew up in the suburbs. Uh, her mom was a homemaker, but very driven and very driven to see her daughter be driven.
0: Yeah. Um, and her mom as, a... Uh Hillary has talked about a lot, especially in more recent years, um, was a huge influence in, I mean, really just shaping her personality and her drive. Um, During the 2008 election, for instance, Hillary described her mother as a woman who, quote, never got a chance to go to college, who had a very difficult childhood, but who gave me a belief that I could do whatever I set my mind to. Um, And Dorothy was tough. I mean this woman she also grew up in really tough circumstances um she had to leave home i think because of abuse when she was 15 and essentially was supporting herself as a nanny i want to say um and when hillary was but four years old she comes home after some neighborhood girls had bullied her and she was really upset about it and um Hillary writes in her autobiography, Living History, that her mom said, "You have to stand up for yourself
3: because there is no room in this house for cowards." And I had read that quote somewhere in some article that was talking about this very topic, and I was like, "Oh, that's a that's a good um, that's a good sentiment. I, I can appreciate that coming from a parent." Not realizing it was said to a four year old. He was four, yeah, but then <laughs> but then apparently, so she
0: you know takes Dorothy's advice. And goes out and, um, I guess kind of like stands up for herself. And the next time she comes home, she says, Mom, I can play with the boys now. Ah,
5: uh, whoa. Which I know, I know. There
0: are a lot of moments when in her, her, uh, upbringing that you're like, Oh, she can play with the boys now. Such as Dorothy's big dreams for little Hillary. Um, this has been noted in a number of her bios that her mom, Suggested. I mean, she kind of dreamed like this was her vicarious dream for Hillary, that she become the first female Supreme Court justice. I love that. No, that's no small potatoes. <laughs> yeah, I know. No pressure. No pressure. Um, uh, But we should also note, too, that uh, Dorothy and Hugh were decidedly Republican. Yeah. Yeah, they weren't. I mean, she wasn't being raised as a politically liberal um little girl, which might be
3: surprising to some. But she Hillary, not Dorothy. Hillary did get sort of a an early splash of cold water when it comes to sexism at just 12 years old thanks to NASA. Oh. Yeah, she writes in her book A Living History how, you know, I'm not I'm not any less capable than the dudes. Uh but when she was 12 and she was totally consumed with space race fever, she writes to NASA volunteering to become an astronaut which I don't, I don't want to like be sound patronizing or anything, but that's like the cutest. That's like the cutest thing. Yeah, it's adorable. Like, no, I volunteer. I, I volunteer as tribute to be an astronaut, but they rejected her based on her gender. And she wrote that it was the first time I hit an obstacle that I couldn't overcome with hard work and determination, and I was outraged. And that was something, Caroline, that jumped out
0: to me. This like just disbelief that there was something that her hard work and determination, as she described it, like couldn't solve. And it's going to be something, too, that she is going to come, you know, kind of uh run full speed into once she um, becomes more involved in politics later in life. Um, but in Living History, she describes um, that kind of sex awakening to sexism as a, quote unquote, click moment, like the light bulb went on of, oh, it is. It's it's kind of a rare thing that I'm being raised to um, to be to consider myself as capable as the boys, because the world at large isn't necessarily like that. And I love
3: that because that, you know. You don't hear about a lot of families of that era raising their girls necessarily. I'm not saying all families, obviously. Not all families. Hashtag not all families. But, I mean, I just, that warms my little cold dead heart. Whenever I hear any family from any era raising their little girl to be just as capable and confident as their sons. Yeah, and she always
0: expected to go to college, mm-hmm. you know, she it, it, because in that era, of course, it would have been perfectly acceptable for her to graduate from high school and get her, uh, quote-unquote, MRS degree. <laughs> um, but she was like, no, 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 no. I want to do things with my life, like be an astronaut. Oh, wait, <laughs> I can't. NASA. So we have her awakening to the reality of sexism. Um, At 15, a few years later, she has uh, what she cited as her awakening to injustice when she hears Martin Luther King Jr. speak.
3: But this wasn't the first time she had basically been around viewpoints of people from different backgrounds. In a 1992 interview with Newsweek, Hillary attributed her sense of social responsibility to her parents and a Methodist youth minister who took her youth group to migrant farming communities where the kids would babysit for the families when the parents had to go work long hours, and they would just talk with the teens. So as a teenager, Hillary was no stranger to people who were of different backgrounds than herself. And she cites
0: that as really planting the seeds for um, the research and work that she would do around Poverty and children's issues um, in high school. No surprise. She was a terrific student. I mean, Hillary is kind of a Tracy flick. Let's be yeah. honest. Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> um, and she's still perceived in a lot of ways as a Tracy flick um, for any people out there who've seen Election, um, the movie Election, not like the election happening right now. Uh, but she served on student council. She headed up her high school's Republican club. And debated the Democrat Club, naturally. And she was also the vice president of the National Honor Society, in addition to a bunch of other extracurriculars that she participated in. Um, And BuzzFeed News dug up her uh, senior yearbook. And one of the things that they found in it was a column that she wrote for the school newspaper, pretending that she was interviewing her future self, so Tracy Flick, yeah. <laughs> um, so Hillary, in her um, like future, Hillary was already a successful lawyer, um, and she said though at the the very end of this fake interview um, that her post high school goal was to quote marry a senator and settle down in Georgetown. And half of me was like, oh, <laughs> oh you old jokester, but the other half is like, maybe, maybe that was. She could have very well could have been uh, serious because that's almost what happened.
3: Yeah, almost. And you wonder? I I do wonder. Yeah, was she downplaying it? Uh, her ambition or was this? I, I don't know. Hillary, are you listening? <laughs> what What was
0: what was the fake you? Yeah, fill us in on the really context. thinking. Yeah, exactly. Um, so no big surprise that she snagged a scholarship to Wellesley where uh, she started college in 1965 and she majored, again, no big surprise, in political science.
3: Yeah, and she came to college having been raised in a Republican household. She came to college as a Republican who campaigned for Barry Goldwater. But she evolved politically, which is not surprising. If you're a human person, your views do tend to evolve as you get older. Especially in college. Oh, man. I remember um,
0: the... What was it? 2004 election when I was in college and going home and like, oh, I was so fired up to talk to my parents about my political awakening, shaking my my finger in the air.
3: Yeah, I managed to convince my mother to change her vote.
0: Oh, wow. From year. who to who?
3: From Bush to Carrie. Very impressive, Caroline. Yeah, I was in a, um, I was in a history of foreign relations class. And I explained um, modernization theory to her. Yeah, I was far less successful. My parents just kind of laughed and said uh, that I would change my mind when I was older.
0: (laughs) Surprise! It hasn't (laughs) happened. Um, But, uh, yeah, when she gets to college, she is involved in, uh, like, Republican student organizations. But like you said, she kind of has a political awakening um, and organizes the school's first Vietnam War teach-in. And um ends up supporting Eugene McCarthy, who
3: was running on a very uh, anti-Vietnam War platform. Yeah. And in 1968, after Martin Luther King's assassination, she worked with fellow black students to organize a two-day strike to recruit more students and tutors of color. So clearly that... Fifteen-year-old Hillary, who first saw MLK speak, clearly 15-year-old Hillary is still there. Um, And she wrote her senior thesis on poverty and community development. And in 1969, when she graduates,
5: she
0: was valedictorian of her class and president of student government and became Wellesley's first student commencement speaker um, and uh the the students essentially got together and were like hillary you should be the one to speak um which looking back um it's like well who else would you pick uh, and she was wearing her her big framed glasses her like um that would now be very uh warby parker-esque <sighs> and her hair up and this was something i had no idea about her um she delivers this speech following up Republican Senator Edward Brooke, who was the first African American re- elected to the Senate. And um, I guess that he was a, a little a little more um, down with the war and things that were going on um, than her and the student body. So she gets up and makes this speech that made the June 20th, 1969 issue of Life magazine. They did this whole pictorial of, I want to say, like five or six other students who were graduating that year. Uh, it was simply titled The Class of 69. And, um, you know, because this is a time when all of these kids are being, I mean, almost radicalized in a way because you have Vietnam and uh, the sexual revolution and civil rights, all of these things happening. Um, and that Life magazine spread was also the source of. The photo, the social media photo that uh, we posted announcing that we were going to do this episode where she has the long hair and the big framed glasses and those striped pants and sandals that I realized um, look like the ones I'm wearing right now. (laughs) Uh, um, And when we uh, posted that photo, Caroline, like half of the comments were um, wonderful stuff I've never told you, fans saying, I know I'm not supposed to talk about her clothes,
3: but those pants are divine. <laughs> <And> <laughs> That's totally fine. You can comment on how much you like someone's striped pants. <laughs> um Yeah, she – her speech was was fascinating to me, not only for, like, the content, which was obviously interesting, but the fact that she – is so savvy that she was able to dedicate the first part of her speech to addressing things that Edward Brooks said. You know, it's not like she was going after him, but she was like, I can't delve into this topic that I've decided to pick for today without first addressing some of the senator's comments. And I'm just like, I was picturing myself in college. And I was like, well, first of all, I was drunk all the time. So I don't know if, how successful I would have been. But... Uh, For her to be able to just so calmly and coherently, which is where the difference with me would come in, uh, just address his speech and what he said to her students in a way that just, like, drove her point home before then transitioning into the speech that she would prepared. I was just like, you were so impressive. Yeah. I mean, like, it it takes a politician to be able, like yeah. a natural-born
0: politician, to be able to get up and improvise like that.
3: Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Um, but
0: I do want to read from the last bit of her speech, which is also um, the inscription in Rebecca Tracer's book, uh, Big Girls Don't Cry, which is all about Hillary Clinton and the 2008 campaign. Um, so Hillary, 1969, standing up there with her her big frame glasses and... Updo and uh, Graduation Robon said, One of the most tragic things that happened yesterday, a beautiful day, was that I was talking to a woman who said that she wouldn't want to be me for anything in the world. She wouldn't want to live today and look ahead to what it is she sees because she's afraid. Fear is always with us, but we just don't have time for it. Not now. I mean, talk about like a, a passionate young woman who's like ready to go out into the world and like in part of that speech too she says like is echoing the sentiments of a lot of young people at the time which is just complete and total dissatisfaction with the kind of establishment at large and the way that you know things were working out the people who were making all the decisions
3: yeah well i think that comment is particularly poignant today because you don't hear too many politicians. And I'm speaking about 1969 Hillary like she's already a politician, but she kind of was. But you don't hear too many politicians addressing that, that fear factor. And I think you have to because fear is what leads to anti-trans bathroom bills. Fear is what leads to quote-unquote religious liberty bills in places like Mississippi. And so I just think it's really spectacular that as such a young woman, she would be addressing that issue of like, there's no room for fear. We've got to plow ahead and change the world. Like, we can't just sit around and be afraid of this. We've got to go out and do. Well, and something that also
0: echoes her um, politician in training, whether she was cognizant of it or not at the time, was her reaction to. The Life Magazine piece and the, and the media coverage around her commencement speech because, um, the photographer, the Life Magazine photographer noted, um, on one of her photos, he was just like taking notes and said that she was nervous about people kind of thinking that she was attacking Brooks. I mean, she was kind of already thinking about public mm-hmm. perception and wanting to be more of a centrist and not ruffle feathers too much. Um, So that was kind of like another early hint of maybe what was to come. But after Wellesley, she heads off to Yale Law School, where she was one of 36 women in a class of 237. And I got to say, like at this point, so she's at Yale Law School. I mean, Dorothy has to be pumped. She's like, there's Hills. She's on her way
3: to the Supreme Court bench. Yeah, exactly. And then she meets a guy who's bragging about how big watermelons are in Arkansas. Yeah. It's old Bill Clinton. Yeah. And I love that. So she she stalks up to him in the library one day and is like, listen, if you're going to keep looking at me and I'm going to keep looking back, we at least ought to know each other. And that's that's how they met. I mean, very appropriate that she made the first move. Oh,
0: totally. Um, But we're not joking about the whole watermelon thing. She was I think that was also in the 1992 Newsweek interview. She was like, this it's this guy, this returning Rhodes Scholar who was always talking about how big the watermelons were in Arkansas. Um, and as has been emphasized many times, um they were kind of inseparable from that point on. Uh but law school was not just about romance. Hillary kept busy aside from Bill. Um, She was on the Yale Review of Law and Social Action. She worked at the Yale Child Study Center. She took on cases of child abuse while volunteering at the New Haven uh, Legal Services Clinic. She also researched the problems of migrant workers. Going back to her um, teen experience with her youth group, she researched the problem of Migrant Workers, as part of Walter Mondale's Subcommittee on Migrant Labor, which echoes her um, experiences as a teenager with um, her youth group. And in her postgrad year, she continued her work studying kids and medicine and served as the staff attorney for the Children's Defense Fund in
3: Cambridge. And that chunk of info is coming courtesy of PBS. That's right. And that's, of course, a child advocacy group, which I think not only echoes her experience as a teen uh, babysitting for the children of migrant workers, but I think it also echoes echoes her own mother's experience, her mother having overcome abuse and um striking out on her own at such a young age and having to be a child who has to sort of fend for herself. I think that that also shaped a lot of what Hillary was doing in terms of sticking up for kids and later advocating for laws around child emancipation. Well, and not to mention that Bill Clinton's stepfather
0: was abusive. That's right. Toward him. Yeah. So speaking of Bill Clinton, uh, in 1974, post-graduation, their long distance relationship commences because Bill heads back to Arkansas to be with his massive watermelons. Um, <laughs> Which, and, sounds like such a euphemism. Yeah, womp womp. <laughs> Let me restate that. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't
3: think you should. Okay.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sad trombone. Uh, and Hillary, meanwhile rolls out to D.C. to work on the impeachment inquiry staff advising the House Committee on the judiciary during Watergate. So she was essentially, like, digging through all of Nixon's tapes and kind of helping put together the case against him. Um, and after Watergate went down, Hillary's job ended. So she had to make the choice of
3: what to do next? Yeah, Where did she go? Do you go settle down in Georgetown? Find that senator. Or do you go chase Bill Clinton's watermelons? <laughs> Don't go chase. Don't go chasing <laughs> watermelons.
0: Please stick to
3: the <laughs> senator you thought you would marry. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, not necessarily please stick to the senator, but like, this is a major, this is a major point in her life.
0: This is her crossroads. Like the movie starring Britney Spears. (laughs) Like
3: the movie Crossroads. (laughs) Um, So,
0: again, we're going to keep referencing this 1992 Newsweek interview and just, like, media coverage of her in 1992 because it's some of the most, um, I would say, unguarded Hillary Clinton that you could see. I mean, she would have these extensive interviews that
3: are, I wouldn't say rare now, but are um, less orchestrated. Well, and and you also get the sense from a lot of those early interviews that she's no nonsense. And I don't mean that in like a sassy, like, I'm giving her a free pass sort of way. I just literally mean that when you look at some of the questions that interviewers asked her back then, a lot of them were like so idiotic and so baiting. And her answers are very like, no, what? Or, yeah, of course. She's very like... You know, I I almost sense, and this is totally me projecting, but I almost sense like a yearning for someone to ask her a smart question.
0: Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, because she's brilliant, you know, and she's very matter of fact as well. Um But I wanted to to mention how she described to Newsweek the decision that she made to go to Arkansas, the ways that she turned when she arrived at her Britney Spears crossroads because um, she wasn't a girl, but maybe not yet a woman, let's say. <laughs> Um, But in 1974, you know, Bill proposes and uh, Hillary Clinton says that he said, I know this is a really hard choice because I'm committed to living in Arkansas. And I'd say, yeah, it's a really hard choice. And I just finally decided, you know, this is no way to make a decision when you love somebody. You just have to go and see what it's like. So I moved to Arkansas and started teaching at the law school. And I think I've had a more interesting time of it than I would if I had chickened out and not followed my heart. And thinking of Hillary Clinton talking about following her heart is also like was a standout moment for me reading about this stuff of like, whoa, like it's it's just such a I don't know. It's not a, a the type of phrasing that I would associate with her.
3: <laughs> no, I don't think a lot of people
1: would because
0: everyone, you know, uh, talks about how, you know, she's very calculating and. Uh, strategic, and uh, you wouldn't think about, you know,
3: following one's heart, especially not to Arkansas. Yeah, she does in that interview talk about how a lot she very diplomatically discusses how her East Coast and Midwest friends and family were like, Arkansas, what are you even going to do there? And she was. She said she was obviously very pleased to, to find that she could establish a place for herself there professionally.
0: Well, and she said that she liked it, too. The experience of living in a small town where everybody knows your name. <laughs> we did not know that this was going to be the musical episode of Stuff I've Never Told You. I'm fine with it. Uh, but she really made small town Arkansas because they weren't in Little Rock at first. She made it sound like um, just kind of like a big cheers. (laughs) Yeah. You know, people wave, say hello, um, know your name. And that was the pivotal moment really in her life. I mean, this sets the stage for Hillary Rodham to become Hillary Clinton, which is not going to happen when she gets married. And we're going to talk about that when we come right back from a quick break.
3: You know that feeling you get when you can get things done with just the click of a mouse? I mean, it can't get any more convenient than that, right? And now you can even get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your computer into your own personal post office that never closes. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer. And right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF to get a special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else, Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in stuff. That's Stamps.com. Enter stuff. Well, so in 1975, uh, Hillary and Bill get married. And a fun fact, which I didn't know... Uh, that her mom basically had to drag her to the store to buy a dress like a couple days before they got married? Yeah, it was
0: a super low key wedding. Also, weddings in 1975 were way more low key in general than weddings these days. I am saying that a week before I'm getting married, so, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little biased right now. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just like, um, I think it was at their home, um, in their backyard, and she was like, yeah, I just like went and found a dress and, No, no big deal. They get married. I want to say that um, Bill Clinton's mom was not super into her new um, daughter-in-law, but no matter, Bill and Hill's in it to win it. Um, She starts out teaching at the University of Arkansas's law school, where I think Bill was also teaching. And (laughs) as you would imagine... Hillary had the reputation for being a super tough professor and um, did not mind handing out C's, whereas Bill was like, oh, y'all, come <laughs> on now. I'll give you all A's. Y'all, y'all are good people. He
3: gives all of them a watermelon. Y'all, y'all
0: just get, try this watermelon. You see how
3: big this is. <laughs> so through 1979... Hillary Clinton directs the University of Arkansas Legal Aid Clinic. Uh, But in the spring of 1975, backing up a little bit uh, while helming that legal clinic, a judge assigns her to defend a 41-year-old indigent man accused of raping a 12-year-old girl. So you can imagine with her background in advocating for children that this is a difficult spot. She asked to be removed from the case but the court denied her request and in a move that has been brought up multiple times and criticized since then she ended up submitting the girl to a psychological test in order to challenge her credibility which is admittedly not cool but it was part of the job
0: yeah um so i mean because hillary was a really good lawyer um her client still went to jail but on lesser charges And soon after that, it's pretty notable that Hillary and some friends got together and started the area's first rape crisis center, which apparently was one of the first rape crisis centers in the U.S.
3: Yeah, I was reading a column by uh, an advocate for rape survivors uh, who had formerly worked with Hillary Clinton, and she talked about how she was trying to set up a similar thing in Atlanta around the same time. And was told by numerous people like, well, Hillary Rodham is the person that you got to talk to if you want to do anything like this, because she just, again, like plowed ahead and, and made it happen and was sort of a shining example of how to do it if you wanted to set up a crisis center. And
0: quickly speaking to the time uh, that all of this was happening professionally for her one of the reasons why the judge turned down her request to not take the case was because they specifically wanted a woman representing this guy. And Hillary was already at the top of the legal field in general, but there were also not that many lady lawyers at the time to choose from. So they were like, no, you got to take this case. Um, So while it does... It does not excuse the, the shady legal practices that went down. Um, some good came out of it, which I think is you know important to take into account. Um, the next year, in 1976, Bill Clinton is elected to attorney general of Arkansas. And this is when they move to Little Rock. And this is also when Hillary transitions out of academia and into the Rose Law Firm where she would eventually become the firm's first female partner. Um, And she's just, like, working, and she's super busy. She's, like, on all of these boards. Um, She was also the first woman on Walmart's board. uh, And she's the breadwinner, hands down. Bill was not making that much money as attorney general, and she was like, well,
3: you know, it's fine. I'm making plenty of money at Rose. It's fine, yeah. I'm bringing home the bacon and winning the bread. And in 1977, uh, the following year, she co-founds Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families, which is the same year that President Carter appointed her as the first woman to lead the Legal Services Corporation, which was a federal program dedicated to expanding legal aid Access And under her guidance, the the that corporation, so to speak, exploded. They got so much more in funding and were super successful under her under her watch.
0: I wonder if she and Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg have like similar uh, needs for no sleep. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? I, like this. And she doesn't have a kid at this point, And I'm I still don't understand how she would have any time to sleep. Um,
3: no, I mean, because like just, you know, you and I both have lawyer friends and 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 I, you know, we watch television. I've seen Matlock. And so we know kind of how much work it takes to make partner. It takes a long time. I watched Better Call Saul. I've seen what it took for Miranda on Sex and the yeah, City to make partner. Right. Braces and um so yeah the fact that she was working those incredibly long hours and still was on all these boards and fulfilling all these other obligations and on like all these freaking committees and stuff i mean yeah i mean i like sleep too much i mean i hate the sentiment of like how does she do it no but i mean if but seriously yeah (laughs) we could be talking about anybody and i would be like no literally when do you sleep (laughs) and eat the sandwiches when when does that happen um and in 1978 Uh, Bill is elected Arkansas governor. He would go on to serve five terms total. But Arkansas residents weren't so sure about this Hillary Rodham character, this professional lawyer lady uh, who was the first first lady to keep working. And she did keep her name.
0: Yeah. I mean, that was one thing we didn't mention when she got married. She was like, Hey, let's get married. Uh, I'm not going to change my name. Yeah. Um, And Bill would talk about that later because the whole name change thing, and again, I'm saying this is a woman who's getting married next week. Um, The whole name change thing is something that has followed her throughout her political it, career. It really has. It really has. Um, And in one interview with Bill, I think in the early 90s, maybe with his first presidential campaign, of course he was asked about it because it was just assumed that it was like very emasculating for him. Um and he was like, No, no. <laughs> she she wanted to do that since she was nine years old. Okay, I'm sorry, I'll stop the Bill Clinton no, impression. I, it's just kind of fun. I love it. Um but uh yeah, he I mean of course he didn't care, you know, and it was something that um she w- always knew that she would do. Um but the Ar- Arkan- Arkansans? Sure. Arkansans? Arkansans. Arkansans. People in Arkansas, let us know how how you are referred to properly, because I'm sure I'm butchering it. Um, Arkanshancias. Ooh, the Arkanshancias. Yeah. We're not the only people side-eyeing her, because, I mean, she's professional. She And professional in the sense of, like, she's still working at this law firm. She is, I mean, obviously very driven. She really does not care to play the part of a ceremonial first lady in terms of the glitz and the glam. Um, And, of course, she's Hillary Rodham and not Hillary Clinton. And the national press followed suit. Uh, The New York Times reported that the new governor was, quote, married to an ardent feminist, Hillary Rodham, who will certainly be the first lady of Arkansas to keep her married name. And the Associated Press, in reporting on uh, how the, the new first lady of Arkansas was this this feminist who kept her own name when she got married, uh, they made sure to mention that, that Bill had said that, listen, you know, she's actually a lot more traditional than <laughs> than folks would would guess. And that's been another narrative that's followed her throughout her political career, too, of like, you don't have to be scared of her. Yeah. uh, You know, she's actually she's actually more conservative than you might think, um, which is actually like kind of true in a lot of ways. In a profile piece on her in the Arkansas Democrat, here's plain speaking Hillary before she's kind of been put through the press ringer. She said, listen, uh, I need to maintain my interests and my commitments because I need my own identity, too.
3: Which is not a radical thought. I mean, no. I mean, I would like everyone to stop for a moment and close their eyes and just think about that. Like, of course, you want your own identity. You don't want to like absorb yourself into your spouse or whoever, uh, and become like a ghost of yourself. Speak for yourself, sister. <laughs> I can't wait for ghost Kristen. <laughs> yeah. Recording's going to get real weird. Um, Kristen, are you there? I just see a floating denim jacket. Ask my husband. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's funny when you filter. That very non-controversial, non-radical statement through the press, it just becomes like a lightning rod. Oh, yeah. Um,
0: well, and we should also note, too, that it was a few months after uh, that profile came out and she was like, listen, I'm going to do me, y'all. Uh, that's when she made partner at Rose Law Firm and. Um, and she was also serving as chair of the Rural Health Advisory Committee um, that Bill appointed her to, um, which provided health care to rural areas. So we're already seeing the foundation laid for a lot of the platforms that she would champion throughout her political career in terms of poverty, children and health
4: care. Mm-hmm.
3: And listener Will called in with his thoughts about Hillary Clinton.
4: I think I can make apparent where I stand on this issue by recounting that when I met Kristen and Caroline in LA, I spent a solid three or four minutes waxing eloquent on my admiration for Hillary Clinton. Similarly, it is apparent that there is little that can be said that hasn't already been said about her public perception, and that is precisely the point. She has been subject to untold scrutiny beyond many other public figures, not just in the 25 years since her husband campaigned for president, but going all the way back to his time as the governor of Arkansas, a time when one of his Republican opponents made a central theme of his campaign the fact that Hillary Clinton was at the time known as Hillary Rodham. She was, in many ways, the first woman in her position a position of such prominence and eventual power, to take such, a, such an explicit stand on second-wave feminist issues, and that first step made her a threat to so much, and as such was subject to that scrutiny, to that attack, and to a difficult time in the public sphere, to say the least, for so long. But I can say honestly that... Having survived for that long and to this day still championing many progressive causes, despite the claims to the contrary that others may make. That on its own is evidence that to to say it shortly and bluntly, Hillary Clinton really does kick butt. And in
3: 1980, I mean, we've already told you she makes partner. But in 1980, Chelsea is born. So just think about that, too the same year that she's put in all of that work to make partner she also has a child and i think that's incredible for how often you and i have talked about like mommy tracking on this podcast and how, especially in male dominated fields, women who are expected to, you know, run off and have babies that they don't tend to get promoted as often or as fast as men or lesbian women, which is redundant uh, of lesbians, um, because there's that expectation that you're just going to leave to go be a mother. And here she is totally defying all of that. Well, because some people
0: were kind of waiting and saying, oh, well. Okay, the First Lady's had a baby, so now is she going to quit her job, finally? And she's like, nah, nah, y'all. Um, and years later, when Bill Clinton is running for president, Newsweek asks her if she felt guilty about that, about being a working mother. And I, like, in our notes, I, like, circled guilty Over and over again, because it's such a loaded question. Well, yeah,
3: and she gives a great answer. She's like, no, I mean, I did my best. And whether you're a mom who works or whether you're a mom who stays at home with your children, like, you're going to feel guilty and like you could have done better no matter what. And so I did the best I could. Well, and
0: she also framed it in a way of role modeling for her daughter as well.
3: We heard from one mom who definitely appreciates the work that Hillary's done as a working
2: mother. I'm Sarita. I'm a 35 year old mother of three. I live in Pennsylvania. And as a matter of fact, today I am going to drive to Scranton, which is an hour away, to see Hillary speak. I'm really excited. I guess I'm sort of a Hillary super fan. When I think of her, when I hear her name, the first thing that comes to mind is seeing pictures of her at a gay pride rally in the 90s when she was first lady. And I was just a child. And in my family, the topic of gay rights was definitely a don't ask, don't tell situation. And I just remember being very struck by what I considered at the time courage. Now, as an adult, I am grateful for the CHIP program, the Children's Health Insurance Program that she helped create, or at least was a champion of, um, because my three kids are insured that way. I'm a fan of incremental change politically, but I have to admit, I really want a woman president. I intend to see a woman president this time. I have to. I can't go another year voting for an old white guy. I just can't. And uh, I think Hillary is a hero. I admire her so much. She is my all-time favorite politician. I feel close to her. I trust her because she's a working mother and I feel like she understands what I go through, even though she might be rich and privileged beyond what I could ever imagine for myself, I know that there is a commonality in being a working mom, and I really want my two daughters to see a woman president from so early on in their lives that they never think that it's weird or you know, even special. I want them to be able to take it for granted that a woman can literally be anything. I don't think electing a woman will change everything overnight for women, but I do think it's just a symbolic step in the right direction. And if you're going to be voting for a symbolic step in the right direction, you might as well be electing the most qualified person ever to run for president.
0: But in 1981, The Clintons suffer their their first major defeat because Bill is up for reelection and loses. And this is also a really pivotal moment. This is when we see Hillary's first kind of political makeover, both literally and figuratively, because the kind of assessment from that was that Hillary was a liability, her career and her being Hillary Rodham and not Hillary Clinton and her not paying more attention to the way that she did her hair and the way that she dressed and the fact that she always was still wearing, rocking those big framed glasses. You know, she just wasn't really looking the part of a politician's wife. So
3: she might need to make she needed to make him more electable. Hulk smash. But also, this is when she changes her name, finally. And she said that it was more important to other people than it was to me. So I just changed it. Yeah. Um, And
0: she also hired a fashion consultant and started dressing differently. She starts wearing contacts. She dyes her hair. She wears makeup more often. I mean, she literally has a makeover. And in 1982, thanks in part to... Maybe to her makeover, probably to her makeover and also um, changing her name to Hillary Rodham Clinton, but also to her background strategizing, Bill is reelected and then goes on to serve four terms. And she is (laughs) an unusually active first lady, which if she weren't, that at this point would be strange.
3: Yeah, during this time. So Bill had appointed her as chair of the Arkansas Educational Standards Committee and. In her role there, she achieved super hard fought reforms in public education. And this was a massive deal because this work paved the way for Bill to be seen as the education governor in Arkansas. And it helped then boost his national platform. Yeah, I mean, this was paving the way toward Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, and
0: we should also mention that during this time, you know, during these four four terms that they are in the governor's mansion, um, the National Law Journal in both 1988 and 1991 named her among the 100
3: most influential lawyers in America. I mean, she's killing it. Yeah, she's she is killing it. And in 1992, um, I mean, there's there's this deluge of media attention around her, specifically treating her. As if she is this, like, alien from outer space. Like, who is this ambitious woman who wants to have her own career while her husband is making a go for the White House?
0: Yeah. So this is the first presidential campaign. But in a way, at least at the beginning, it was almost a co-presidential campaign, which does sound a little house of cardsy with, uh, Frank and Claire Underwood. But I mean, at the time, it would make sense. It's like, okay, listen. <laughs> Y'all, I'm I'm the governor of Arkansas and I've done plenty of stuff. But listen, my wife brilliant. Like, is brilliant. She, I've appointed her to all of these roles. She's been wildly successful. And this is when, during early in the campaign, when uh, Bill famously says, when you vote Bill Clinton, you get two for the price of one. And that sounds like a great deal. I'm a thrifty gal. Love a good deal. But <laughs> Americans were not interested in a two-for-one deal. And that was at something that the Republicans in
3: particular... Which is crazy because Nancy Reagan was infamously, like, super in control of her husband. Like, Nancy Reagan was essentially a puppet master over Ronald Reagan and totally influenced his decisions and policy and his stance on so many things. I mean, she's the one who frickin', like, framed how they even looked at or talked about AIDS, if at all, at first. And so for Republicans to, like, come at Hillary and Bill, it's like... But they were running as that, you know, I mean, and
0: was I don't have my Nancy Reagan bio in front of me, (laughs) but there's no way she was as successful at that point as totally Hillary was. Um, And all of this framing from the get go really like posed her strength as an indication of his weakness, Mm -hmm. you know, And, and there was the whole kind of Lady Macbeth framing of like. Okay, if we elect this guy, he's going to have this woman whispering in his ear, pulling the strings. And there were rumors that he had promised her a cabinet position, um, which she would, of course, later get um, during the Obama administration. Um, And Newsweek cautiously hailed her as representing A new generation of political wives, which is such a backhanded compliment, too, because it reduces Mm -hmm. this woman who is one of the 100 most influential lawyers in the United States who has all of these accomplishments and accolades under her belt
3: as just a wife framing her only in relation to her husband. Yeah, exactly. And you also have TV reporters asking her things like, hey, some people think that you're an inspiring female attorney mother and other people think of you as the overbearing yuppie wife from hell. How would you describe yourself? And it's like, that just goes back to what I was saying earlier about the ridiculous questions she's getting as this brilliant, accomplished woman in her own right, that she's having to field stupid questions like this. Well, and that that is a direct quote. I mean, like...
0: (laughs) A yuppie wife from hell. Uh, by the way, her answer was uh, that she describes herself as a wife, mother, and activist, um, which I'm even surprised that she uh, even entertained the question. Well, yeah, I mean, but she had to. She gave a politically correct response. Yeah, and she also had to give politically correct responses to the feminist label.
3: Yeah, kind of
0: dancing around that, hedging. Oh well, you know, I I, I don't necessarily identify with. You know, the divisiveness that uh, is associated with feminism today. But, you know, of course, um, the idea that feminism equals man-hating is, she called, nonsense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, she's just already on this Mm tightrope. I would say even more so, way more so than her husband. I mean, right down to her affection for headbands, she was yeah. always wearing
3: those headbands, which I'm like, well, that's just practical. I was wearing headbands all the time, too, at the time. <laughs> I had the same blonde hair, you know, headband. But people made fun of her for it. I mean, well, like, and <laughs> I
0: I remember being a kid and um, I grew up in a very Republican household. I remember being a kid and, you know, hearing those kind of fashion snipes. Her
3: too. Yeah. And that's just because humans are terrible. And I mean, that's not a comment against your parents, because like my parents say the same thing, same kind of stuff about Michelle Obama. And it's like that stuff is just the stuff you say when you don't have something more uh, substantial. Well, and it says a lot about how we value women. Well, right. Because, yeah, again, it's not just about first ladies or women in politics. I mean, that's any woman. Anybody ever wants to discredit a woman, it seems like the first thing they go for is like she's ugly or she's mm-hmm. fat or her look at her stupid clothes or whatever. Look at her headbands. Yeah, yeah, I just uh, yeah, it does say a lot about other people, way more than it says about whoever it is wearing the headband. But then during that campaign there was legit
0: scandal that she and Bill had to immediately navigate and that was the whole Jennifer Flowers uh, affair. And of course, rumors started spiraling and they're trying to control the media narrative um, while at the same time trying to protect their own privacy. Right. Um, And there's a 60 minutes interview with the both of them, which some attribute like his ultimate victory to um, because here she is, you know, here's the wife by his side. Can he really be all that bad if um, she's still committed to him? And it's it's fascinating to watch because they're clearly such a team and they are kind of on the same script. Bill is dodging the direct question of, did you have an affair with this woman? Have you ever cheated on your wife? And just like coming up with these very roundabout answers of like, well, you know, who says, who among us has been a perfect husband? Like all all these really mm-hmm. vague things. And also... Both of them coming back and saying, basically, like, this is no one's business. This is really no one's business. Yeah. Um, Which, I mean, the tough thing is, it's like, kind of when you put yourself in that position, it becomes everyone's business. It's not necessarily right or fair, but that's what happens. Um, But it was also in that interview that she made the famous Tammy Wynette quote.
3: Yeah, she says, you know, I'm not sitting here, some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. I'm sitting here because I love him and I respect him and I honor what he's been through and what we've been through together. And you know, if that's not enough for people, then heck, don't vote for him.
0: Then heck. Then heck. I would also like to note that during this time, she did have a little bit of an Arkansas twang, um, which is really entertaining to go back and watch. Yeah, considering she's from Chicago. Yeah, although when she does campaign through the South, uh, currently, it comes back. <laughs> you know, that's uh, what's that called? Um, code switching. So partly due to re-strategizing around Hillary's role in the campaign, essentially kind of pulling her back a little bit and being like, whoa, 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 y'all don't need to worry. Bill's gonna run the show. Hillary's just, I mean, she just happens to be smart and accomplished, um, and her publicly reiterating her devotion to him, Um, of course, he wins. So they move into the White House in 1993, but immediately Hillary becomes an unusually
3: active first lady. Yeah. So she becomes the first first lady to have a post-grad degree, her own professional career, and her own office in the West Wing of the White House. And not only that, she had more political staffers dedicated to her than Al Gore did as vice president. She's also the first first lady since Eleanor Roosevelt to take a policy-making tack. And she advocated strongly for women's rights throughout 80 countries and also advocated strongly for getting a woman into her husband's cabinet.
0: <laughs> that sounds so funny, like Bill's going to put a lady in in a a big uh, armoire. We don't know what their life is like. Who knows? Big watermelons. (laughs) But here's the thing that we all know, uh, because no perfect politician exists. Hillary Clinton was not perfect in her politics, Mm -hmm. um, even when it comes to issues of poverty and uh, welfare that she was extremely influential in. I mean, especially in this first term, she was strategizing in both the foreground and also the background on um, these these policies that Bill would later enact. And she had very progressive era-ish ideas about poverty kind of resulting from a failure of responsibility rather than, say, systemic injustice, especially if we look at how uh, people of color are disproportionately um, part of the welfare system. And I think it was around 93 um, in a Time magazine interview. It was actually, yeah, soon after um, Bill had gotten into office, she was talking to Joe Klein from Time. And I mean, her her explanation of what she thought they should do with welfare is a little a little eyebrow raising for sure. I mean, she advocated stricter welfare regulations and tougher sanctions, essentially saying like, We need to put more rules in place and punish people if they don't get off the dole soon enough, because the problem is that there are not there's not enough structure in their environments.
3: Yeah, she basically said that um, in advocating for stricter welfare regulations and in advocating for um, overhauls of inner city school systems, that when you institute heavier structure, it improves people's lives, especially when there is little structure at home. And so, I mean, I think painting with that broad of a brush ruffled a lot of feathers.
0: Well, and it ruffles feathers today. I mean, that's one of the reasons why uh, Black Lives Matter, for instance, um, has not been a huge Hillary supporter. um, Also, too, I mean, we're not going to get into it, but also because of um the the criminal justice policies that bill clinton enacted that were attached to these concepts around welfare and
3: poverty and how that also related to crime yeah but i mean i you know she was super uh, involved in healthcare reform that is one of her biggest things that is what i remember from being a kid and watching the nightly news with my parents i remember her being involved in healthcare of course, being a child and having absolutely no context or explanation for what was going on, and just was like, "Yeah, there's this. She's it's the president's wife, and she's talking about healthcare, and people seem real upset about it." I really love the idea of of tiny Caroline sitting watching the the
0: nightly news, like little half half glasses on, little little pipe, little bubble pipe. Yeah, the
3: the funny papers spread across my lap, like yeah, healthcare, and of course, people called it Hillary Care just like they call it Obamacare today. because we're so creative. Humans are not a creative bunch, apparently. And uh, she was appointed head of that task force on national health care reform, Bill's first week in office. But it went bust, and the administration dropped it altogether by September 94. And a lot of folks blamed it on
0: not her being a poor leader, actually when she was first kind of making the rounds um, after her appointment, A lot of politicians were really impressed with the way that she was just like walk in a room and be like, all right, let's get down to business. I'm Hillary. Don't mess with me. Um, (laughs) But rather than making it a more open process, Mm -hmm. she, in a very lawyer-y kind of way, had her committee and was like, "Okay, let's go into this room. We're going to keep things private. And then when we're done and ready to present everything, then we will. And Congress was like, (laughs) oh, no, lady. No, 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 no. We're going to shut that down. Um. So, 1994 was a rough year for her. It was a, a terrible, no good year. Um, and she was again dragged through the mud because much, of, much like Claire Underwood's
3: campaign. Oh my gosh!
0: Yeah, I mean, there were so, reading up on this stuff. I was like, hmm, how much of this is so based, based on the? Someone club. drew some, yeah, some heavy inspiration from this. Um, but 94 wasn't a total bust. She did help launch
3: the Department of Justice's Office on Violence Against Women. Yeah, but still, we see that the weak midterm elections and the healthcare fail were a, a big setback for her. That was pretty demoralizing, and uh, once again, we see her ambition and her visibility in those very non-traditionally feminine roles being seen and painted in the press as a liability. So yet
0: again, we see a
3: uh, sort of figurative and and also literal
0: makeover of her where you know by christmas time after the midterm elections she is in full-on ceremonial first lady mode of showing off the white house christmas tree and showing you know the cookies although man we didn't even mention the tea and cookies quote from uh
3: the campaign Oh right one of the quotes that got her into big trouble with people was that you know i'm not just going to be the first lady who sits around making tea and cookies all day long. And of course, as you can imagine, a lot of women found that to be very offensive. And a lot of men were like, why not? <laughs> and from what her
0: friends have said, I mean, it and understandably, it was extremely demoralizing for her. I mean, some said that she went through a depression at the time because yet again, she was essentially being reined in.
3: Yeah, she was being reined in and she was getting a smack on the hand for just, again, expressing the fact that she desired an identity beyond being at home and being Bill's wife, that she wanted her own identity and that she had worked so hard to establish it. But when you say that stuff and people know you and you say it to your best friend, it's one thing. But when you are in such a high profile position and you say it to the press, which then, of course, goes out to Everyone, of all backgrounds, it tends to get uh, filtered through different lenses. Well, and she also, she wanted that co-presidency. Oh, had, yeah, she did.
0: And I think Bill wanted it, too. Um, but America did not. Um, and we can sense her frustration with all of this uh, loud and clear. It's not just a sense. It's obvious. In 1995, when uh, she famously said, if I want to knock a story off the front page, I just change my hairstyle.
3: But, I mean, 95 also sees her making history. Yeah, she has a Uh, comeback. Yeah, she did. In 95, we see the so-called first lady of the world traveling around the world, complete with daughter in tow, Chelsea. Uh, She travels through all of these Southeast Asian countries, meeting specifically with women's groups and doing things like championing microloans for women in these countries. But... The highlight, the jewel in the crown, the thing that is still quoted today and should be quoted forevermore is this electrifying speech that she delivers in Beijing at the UN Fourth World Conference on women. Yeah, this was kind of an 11th hour speech that she delivered
0: that um, her her handlers essentially were really nervous about because, I mean, she was on the world stage, she was in China um, and she wanted to deliver something. Really powerful. And this moment really seemed to re-energize her from being effectively pushed aside. I mean, it really seems like she kind of gathered up all of, you know, all of the times that she had been told to kind of like temper her mm-hmm. her smarts, her intelligence um, and put it into this speech where. Uh, she famously said, if there is one message that echoes forth from this conference, let it be that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights once and for all. And this speech really cemented her as a global advocate for women. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to just, um, essentially saying like, you know, women's rights should not be some niche Interest, uh, But they are also human rights. She decried sex slavery, domestic violence, genital mutilation, coercive abortion, sterilization, wartime rape, bride burning. I mean, she essentially like went through the laundry list of all the violence and discrimination that women around the world faced. And as a result, The New York Times, for instance, reported her speaking, quote, more forcefully on human rights than any American
3: dignitary has on Chinese soil bill included yeah And when people asked bill you know like oh what do you think about your lady going rogue over here i mean he fully he was very clear that she had his full support well and she
0: she had support across the aisle yeah i mean there were i mean i think it would be it would be such a liability to um argue against what she said and it really seems like one of the only and certainly, one of the last times she would enjoy that much unanimous
3: praise from Democrats and Republicans alike. Yeah, and so coming off this victory, and despite her continued efforts to support healthcare reform, support children's health insurance, uh, fight for women's rights, the focus would then turn to their personal lives. Yeah, there was a grim horizon. On the home front. Um,
0: And we're not going to get into all these details because we've already talked for a long time and we're only up to nineteen ninety five. But what was to come, of course, would be Paula Jones, Kenneth Starr, Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky. Um, And she would also become the first lady to testify before a Senate committee regarding uh, the Whitewater real estate project um, that she and Bill had started with another couple while they were living in Arkansas. I mean, and of course, Bill was impeached. Mm -hmm. And the whole time, though, it was kind of interesting about the Monica Lewinsky scandal um, where, I mean, and and a lot of people, a lot of women and stuff. I've never told you fans um, are not pleased that she still stood by her man through Mm -hmm. all of that. And the way that she um, helped to trash Monica Lewinsky's public image Um, For the sake of politics, um,
3: her approval ratings went up as his went down Mm -hmm. because they were like,
0: well, that poor
3: woman. Yeah. Listener Maya wanted to chime in about the whole issue around Bill's affairs and Hillary's trustworthiness.
5: In my opinion, the word distrust summarizes much of the public's opinion about Hillary Clinton. And it's not just because she's a career politician. It's so much more than that long before allegations surrounding her emails, America has been wondering and questioning what exactly is wrong with her. How can she be doing what she's doing to the degree of success that she's had? And it's done in a way that we don't do with male politicians. It runs so much deeper than the lack of trust we have for politicians overall, and when you get right down to it, so much of that is because she's a woman. There's a reason the name Rodham hasn't really been heard since the beginning of her presidential campaign. Whenever a woman's husband is unfaithful, we always look towards the wife asking, why and what did you do and why would he do this to you? And that stigma has stayed with her. And there's just something about a woman who doesn't know how to please her man that the American public has trouble standing behind. And this feeling is popular despite knowing how common infidelity is. That is not to say that the public doesn't respect Hillary. Young women all over the world have been writing essays about how strong and decisive and politically minded she is for decades. But in the back of America's mind, there's always that question of, what is wrong? What is going on there? As a presidential candidate, Hillary Clinton is not inherently more or less trustworthy than any other candidate. And yet, the word untrustworthy has been tossed in her direction disproportionately.
3: But what I think is so interesting, and I don't know, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but, you know, as Bill's presidency is winding down and Hillary is winding up her career, I mean, in 1999, she became the first First Lady to run for national office while her spouse was still a sitting president. And in 2009, she became the first First Lady to subsequently serve as a cabinet member and as Secretary of State. To me, it feels like she just sort of... Hit the play button, you know, like not obviously not that she didn't accomplish things as First Lady of Arkansas and First Lady of the United States of America, because she obviously did. We've this is what this whole episode has been about, about all the amazing things she accomplished and, and how what a brilliant woman and lawyer she was is. But to me, it just feels like she kind of went, oh, all right, I'm going to New York. <laughs> I've got stuff let's, to do. Yeah, Let's buy the house in New York. Let's get to it. Um
0: And when you think about her qualities that were most reviled, really, of being very tactical and strategic and calculating, if a male politician had all of those possess all those same qualities and that same level of accomplishment and straight up intelligence, you cannot tell me Hillary Clinton is not straight up brilliant Um there would not have been an issue, you know? No one would have been like, Yeah, but look at his hair. <laughs> unless maybe he got like a four hundred dollar haircut. And
3: unless it was Donald Trump. Yeah.
0: Well, and Donald Trump of course hasn't done all of those things. Um Well, yeah, of course. But you know what I mean? That's that's the the takeaway for me with all of this is like, A, why did you move to Arkansas? I mean one of the big questions too, Caroline that I'm left with after all of this was why did you move to Arkansas, yeah, for such like for such a planner, you know what I mean, like following her heart
3: like that, I don't know, I mean, but maybe she still had the plan, maybe this was the plan all along, yeah, I mean, it you know it could be that they really are a Frank and a Claire Underwood, and that she maybe thought that by. following and marrying a man who had his eyes on a larger platform, a higher platform, that she herself could gain access to a higher platform as well. So maybe it was calculated, or maybe she really was just in love and, you know, wanted to follow Bill. I mean, those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but, um, you know, it is interesting to think what would have happened. Would she, you know... If she had not married Bill, if she had stayed in D.C., would she be an Elizabeth Warren, like a really cool woman who's outspoken and accomplished and very admirable, but not the, you know, the 20 years running Gallup Poll's most admired American woman? But also scandal ridden in a lot of ways, too. Yeah. I mean, th- that's the thing. I mean She's
0: they are a very imperfect political couple. Um, but it's like you have to take. You got to take the good and the bad and you put it together and then you have the facts of life. And I know that I misquoted the theme song, um, but uh, it was it was really helpful for me to, to to have the chance to look into her bio. I mean, I learned so much about this woman, you know, who, regardless of the outcome of this election and regardless of whether you love or loathe her, I mean, she will be in history books. hmm. Because I mean, she, there there's no one else like her has been, and I think it'll take a while for there to be someone.
3: And I think it's interesting and unique and unfortunate that with how much she did accomplish, uh, the fact that it is all filtered through her husband and being a Clinton, so many of her accomplishments do get forgotten and left in the dust because of the scandal that's been attached to both of them.
0: And Caroline, we didn't even we didn't even get up to the pantsuits. <laughs> she she did so much we didn't even, we didn't even have the time to get through that whole media phase <laughs> i mean but that's the thing too like i hope that i hope that listeners have also gained some understanding as as i certainly have of that extremely gendered lens that the media has persistently viewed her through mm-hmm. i mean and it makes so much sense why she doesn't Necessarily come across as all that open and likable because she doesn't like the press. I mean, they have never been kind to her. Yeah, in a lot of ways. So, oh, people are going to say we sound too sympathetic. Uh, but listeners, let us know what you think. Mom stuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address, and you can also tweet us at Momstuff podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a letter here from uh, someone who would like to remain anonymous, who has a request. Uh, Anonymous writes, would you guys consider doing a show on military women? I know you did one on army wives and are about to release one on the military wars on women. Um, And uh, this person says that uh, she's stationed in Korea. Um, And that the, uh, she calls it, the big army is cracking down on problems of prostitution and trafficking. And she says that women have been present in all aspects of war through history as victims, as those holding down the home front, but also as combatants and at times aggressors. Usually women in war are seen as freaks or necessities due to personal shortages. But we are so much more than that. There's so much to unpack with military women. American military women still face open discrimination in certain units and are underrepresented at higher levels. I know I'm usually the only woman in the room when I go to meetings. Sexual assault is a very real threat, and the gender sexual double standard is probably worse in the U.S. military than in most other American workplaces. But in the last 15 years, ladies are breaking down barriers, both for the good and ill. And she references uh, Lindy England, who was uh, torturing prisoners just like the male soldiers and she says just something to consider looking forward to the next show um so thank you for your request anonymous and also i'm uh wishing you safety in your job and listeners wanting to know whether that's something that you
3: would like us to explore more deeply as well okay well i have a letter here from Anne in response to our lesbian wage bump episode she says it got me thinking about my life a lot I studied library and information studies and hoped to one day work at a library. During my studies, I got more interested in IT and libraries, integrated library systems and other library software, etc., and was part of a team who worked at a project aimed at getting more open source software into libraries in my country. It got a bit famous in the librarian community, and I got offered a job in the second biggest library in the country. They were developing a library catalog and needed someone who was a librarian but is not afraid of software and more technical stuff than just books. By the way, you guys should play a drinking game to how many times I'm saying library. Actually, I think it's pronounced library. (laughs) Yeah, I keep like almost catching myself saying that because my mouth is lazy. Um, Okay, so Anne goes on to say, at the interview, it became very clear to me that they are desperate and had been looking for someone like me for a very long time. They interviewed a lot of people, but no one wanted the job. I couldn't understand that. It was my dream job, incredibly interesting and also paid much better than almost anything else in the library. I realized what the issue was when they asked me, the boss is a woman and the rest of the team is 11 men. Do you think that would be a problem? It wouldn't be for me. As a geek and a gamer and somewhat butch pansexual woman, I'm used to being the only female in a group, but I could definitely see all the other candidates, all women, because even if a man studies librarianship, they don't work at libraries, having a huge issue with this. I got the job, and I'm happy to have it. I occasionally encounter sexism from my colleagues, and especially in the beginning, I had to set boundaries to show them that I'm not useless, as some of them thought, but it's pretty great otherwise. When I see what my classmates do now, I know I have significantly higher paychecks than them because anything IT is almost the best paid work in libraries. So I have a pansexual wage bump, if it's a thing, because they're good at communicating with people. They read a lot and have other stereotypically female traits, whereas I'm an introverted geek who's not afraid of computers. I'd say good for me, but I feel like it's bad for them, so it doesn't make me very happy. So thanks, Anne.
0: Which reminds me, uh, we did an episode on librarians years and years and years ago, but um, I would love to revisit the topic if uh, we have any librarians in our audience who would also enjoy that. Um, also, shout out to, to Bossy James. They're great, and they're librarians. All right, with that, send us your letters. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address, and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, with our sources, so you can fact-check everything we just said about Hillary Clinton, head
2: on over to you.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: So here's something that some of you might find shocking.